We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by regular ICRT commentator Ross Feingold. Good evening. And on the telephone from Taijong by equally regular ICRT commentator Donovan Smith. Hey, good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing the Taiwan Relations Act at 40, a sculpture in London continuing to cause controversy, the possible suspension of operations at the Taijong power plant, and the annual Daja Matsu pilgrimage kicking off quite literally. But we'll begin with the DPP this Wednesday, announcing that it is delaying its presidential primary until May. Now, party chairman Zhuo Rongtai said that the decision to postpone the primary was made during a three-hour-long meeting of the party's Central Executive Committee and Jaw says committee members believe that more time is needed for mediation talks between President Tsai Ing-wen and former Premier William Lai and that means postponing the public opinion survey to a later date. Now, of course, the DPP was originally slated to hold its presidential primary later this month and a public opinion poll was scheduled to be held from April 15th through the 17th to choose its candidate for next year's election. Now, the DPP had also planned to name its 2020 presidential candidate on April the 20th. But now, Secretary-General Law Wen-Jar says the primary will probably be conducted around May the 22nd and the candidate will be named on May, the last day of May, that being May the 31st. So, Ross, we had, first of all, a few weeks ago, we had the KMT delaying their primary and now we've got the DPP delaying their primary. Well, you make an interesting point there by comparing it to the KMT because historically it's been the KMT that at every election cycle will change its primary process. And a lot of that has to do with, no pun intended, internal politics, who's the party chairperson, who's the leading candidate, who are the competing candidates. And in the past, that's often included accusations that we're, we're trying to fix the system so that a specific candidate can win. None of that ever reflects well on a political party as an exercise of democracy. It's very unfortunate to see the DPP now joining this. So instead of sticking with the rules, the rules were very very clear. They were transparent. Everybody knew the process if there was to be a challenger. Nobody expected there to be a challenger. As it turned out, Lai Qingde decided uh, very close to the registration date uh, deadline and when the primary was to occur to challenge the incumbent Tsai Ing-wen. And now we're changing the rules in the middle of the game. Frankly, Lai Qingde has been, uh, I would say, very diplomatic about this late change instead of going on the attack and saying, this is undemocratic, it's unfair, it's targeting me. Obviously, this is all being done to target him, and, and that's why there's a mediation team. The point of the mediation team is to try and persuade Lai Qingde to withdraw or to agree to be Tsai Ing-wen's running mate uh, or to come back as premier if, if she wins re-election or, or, or be the party chairperson uh, after the next election. Right? That, that's the whole point of mediation. But clearly the mediation is geared towards allowing Tsai Ing-wen to remain the party's candidate and, and seek and uh, potentially win a second term. Uh, so, uh, again, you know, changing the rules this late in the game, it just doesn't reflect well on the party. So, Donovan, do you see this mediation working, or do you think they might as well go home and make a cup of tea, because it's never going to work? Yeah, I think they may as well go home and make a cup of tea. Uh, Lai Chinda has been um, <clears throat> playing this for quite some time. I mean, you know, he, he, he's not going to, unless he's got another book prepared up his sleeve for, for launch in 2024, he's pretty much committed, and, and he's a straight up and down 
committed himself to the next uh, the next race. And frankly, outside they've already given him the premier post. He's already turned that down. You know, he's already stepped down from that. And a VP is really kind of a is is a lower uh, position than premier, really. In 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 fact, so he they really don't have very much to offer him. So what I really think this is, is an exercise in trying to uh, give. A, tie a chance to bolster her uh, you know bolster her position in the opinion polls and just see if they can figure out something or shake something out that uh, can either threaten bully or uh, bribe uh, lie off because uh, you know there there's there are potentially some existential issues for the party here if if they really try and ram it through and force lie to lose, in other words, they they hand pick Ty. <clears throat> that's <clears throat> excuse me. That's that risks a split in the party. Uh, so they they really don't have a whole lot they can do. So I, I really think the only the best thing that they can hope for, and what they're I, I guess what they're hoping for is buy themselves some time, and possibly they think that maybe uh, you know Ty can improve her position in the polls. So, Ross, you mentioned, obviously, Donovan there said it could be set up for Tsai to take more power and get her place fixed. And earlier you mentioned how William Lai has been quite diplomatic about this. I mean, do you see it turning nasty in the coming couple of weeks? Well, when we say set it up, uh, there is a mechanism that the party can employ uh, through its its decision-making processes, whether the Central Executive Committee and then a party Congress, where they would draft the candidate. So the party can implement mechanisms, uh, and this would be legal, and it would be in accordance with uh, its articles of association uh, to have a party Congress that would... Uh, eliminate the primary and just sort of vote by affirmation. Everybody who agrees Sia Gwen should be our candidate, raise their hand, or, you know, say aye, and, and thus the candidate will be anointed. So that, that when we say set up, I think we need to be very careful what we're describing, where we say fix it. Uh, there would still be a, a process to do that, but it would be with, with a preordained outcome in mind. Again, should the party do that, uh, to me, that's uh, just one more part of a process that's already begun and that I was already critical of earlier, which is you're you're departing from the previously identified, agreed to, approved, whatever you want to describe it as, process. So if we're going to eliminate the primary entirely, as opposed to just delaying it and draft the candidate or, or anoint the candidate by Acclamation, uh, that's, again, not very democratic. Uh, it really departs from uh, what, what a democratic and progressive, democratic progressive party being their name uh, should should stand for. And uh, you know, whether Lai Qingde would then run as an independent or, or lick his wounds and, and wait for uh, opportunity in 2024, we could only speculate, uh, no need to do that at this early date. Uh, but it wouldn't, it would, it would uh, you know, look, it wouldn't reflect well on Tsai Ing-wen also. She participated in such a process. You know, for a second there, I thought Donovan was going to say that uh, this delay was actually geared towards uh, giving Tsai Ing-wen a chance to gracefully step away rather than trying to give Lai Qingde an opportunity to gracefully step away. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I, I really think that, I mean, the, the party right now is, is 
the you know there was a poll that came out recently, and now they're they're dodgy polls. I don't really don't take them too seriously, but they did. It, it was interesting that it suggested that it, party members support Tsai uh, rerunning as a candidate, but independents and Pam Blue leaners who would presumably be included in a poll. Um, <clears throat> under the current rules, would support w- William Lye. And so this creates a, a very a problematic situation for the party. And, um, I, you know, I agree with what, with, with, you know, with what Ross has been saying, that is that, you know, this, this is a tricky territory for the party. Um, and so if they really try and force it through that Tsai becomes a candidate, it, it's going to create a a, a Essentially, what's happened is that Lai running has put his finger on a kind of on a cleavage point in the party because the DPP is not really a unified party, and neither is the KMT. That neither of the parties are really right wing or left wing. They're kind of a hodgepodge of both, and they're based around the identity issue. And there's been some blowback from the from the the more deeper green elements within the DPP. That's one fault line. Um, but there are also other fault lines in the party, and him running, it, it threatens that a lot of these, uh, you know, these uh, fissures within the party turn into serious cracks. Right, well, moving on now from the DPP, we'll talk about something else completely different, that being the 40th anniversary of the signing of the Taiwan Relations Act. Now, a delegation from the United States is coming to Taiwan next week when these things begin on April the 15th, and that's being led by representative, or former representative speaker Paul Ryan, who will be making appearances at some of these events for next week. Now, the American Institute in Taiwan has launched a year-long campaign called AIT at 40, which basically celebrates the 40th year of AIT and also the 40th year of the Taiwan Relations Act. Now, the delegation being led by Ryan also includes AIT Chairman James Moriarty, the Chair of the House Science, Space and Technology Committee, as well as several House representatives from both the Democratic and Republican parties. Now, several other former US officials will also be in town next week, several of whom actually wrote the Taiwan Relations Act. Now, Ross, so, but of course, all this comes at a time where, well, questions are abound about how much the US actually does think about Taiwan and questions especially about an arms sale that's allegedly on hold, but then it may not be on hold. There, there are a few key issues uh, surrounding this event that, that we need to keep in mind. Yes, it is the 40th anniversary of the Taiwan Relations Act. It's also the 40th anniversary of derecognition, uh, which led to the drafting and passage into law signing by President Carter of the Taiwan Relations Act. So uh, to celebrate this uh, as, as, as this great event, we should also keep in mind the, the somewhat bittersweet aspect, which was the derecognition uh, of the government here and the establishment of formal relations with the People's Republic of China. And to that point, Gavin, if you look at the U.S. embassy in Beijing or U.S. consulates throughout China websites, they are simultaneously conducting a series of events to celebrate the 40th anniversary of U.S. PRC relations and includes the same social media, outreach, branding, um, you know, U.S.-China relations at 40, etc. Uh, so we, we should not, in fact, we cannot 
look at this in a void and just look at it as U.S.-Taiwan relations. Uh, it, it always is in the, has to be in the context of the triangular relationship between the U.S., China, and Taiwan. Now, as far as Speaker, former Speaker Ryan uh, coming, there's the key. He's the former Speaker. It's not the current Speaker. It's not the current majority leader of the Senate either. Uh, there was a lot of hope that the U.S. would send a cabinet-level official. Uh, that does not seem to have happened. There were calls from members of Congress for, for the president, for the Trump administration to send a cabinet level official. As of now, it does not seem to be happening. Uh, in many ways, this is a rerun of the event last June. So last June, there was a dedication of the new AIT building for a number of bureaucratic reasons. The AIT personnel did not move in despite having that ceremony last June. Uh, so now they're finally moving in. Uh, but last June, a, 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 a sub-cabinet level official uh, ro- uh, under Secretary Royce came to Taiwan. People thought somebody of a higher level than her would come, a, a more prominent job title than, than, than she holds at the State Department would come. That did not occur, so people were disappointed. And, and now I think uh, we're going to get the same level of disappointment. Of course, the government here, whether it's the presidential office or the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, pro-government media, uh, they're not going to admit to disappointment, right? They're going to they're uh, say how wonderful it is that a former Speaker Ryan came to this event, members of Congress came to the event. But remember, we have members of Congress come to Taiwan multiple times per year, whether in delegations or individually. So getting members of Congress to come here is, is no big deal. In fact, members of Congress go to China as well, uh, notwithstanding current tensions between U.S. and China. So uh, I would encourage our listeners to temper their enthusiasm for this event and, and keep in mind the, the various factors at play here. But but to declare it some kind of victory for Taiwan or, or historic moment, special moment in U.S.-Taiwan relations really is an exaggeration. Yeah, basically this is kind of a, a, a celebration of, of the bandages on a self-inflicted wound. Um, <clears throat> the um, you know with the you know with the the ROC government storming out of the UN in '71, and then <clears throat> Carter finally de-recognizing Taiwan in '79, when he probably could have gotten away with recognizing both uh, Taiwan and China. <clears throat> along the lines of North and South Korea and East and West Germany, uh, and really not taking that option, which, you know, is, is poor, I think a poor choice on his part. Um, you know, so, and the TRA was essentially Congress rallying to the defense of Taiwan. Um, so looking back, it, it, it's kind of a, a celebration of the U.S. Congress throwing up a bulwark at the last minute against the stupidity of both the ROC and U.S. government's executive branches. Um, so, yeah, the, it, I kind of I agree with Ross here. This is, this is not something to be terribly uh, – it should be tempered, I guess, the, 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 I think it's the word used here for uh, in the enthusiasm. Um, the other thing is, 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 as far as the sending Paul Ryan, yeah, exactly. This is the former uh, – the former – uh, speaker and the 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 act that was passed through Congress, it, it was specifically said the sense of Congress was that the U.S. should be sending more high-level uh, government officials. They passed it, I think, unanimously, if I recall. Um, 
and the State Department hasn't been doing that. Now, there's one possible good good reason uh, that they could be doing this is they're safe, they're keeping their powder dry because they want to push through the F-16 and the uh, V um, sale, and then the uh, and the tanks, the M1, A1 tanks or A2 or whatever they are um, in July. So maybe they just don't don't want to uh, you know, rock the boat in the meantime, and then they've also got the uh, the China and U.S. trade talks going on at the same time, so they don't really want to rock the boat there. But to me, this smells like a state being a little bit weaselly. Well, I, I, I wouldn't put the blame entirely on the State Department simply because um, they chose him. Well, well, but no, but but ultimately, <laughs> I don't know who but, else to blame. But, 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 well, I don't well, think Trump. I don't think Trump made the call personally. Well. I, 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 <laughs> Actually, he did because uh, this decision is made in the White House. It's not made in the State Department. It's not made by bureaucrats and career foreign service officers in the State Department. It would involve the Secretary of State and his his immediate aides, who are all political, mostly political appointees, and, and sec- uh, uh, National Security Advisor John Bolton, who we all know is intimately familiar with Taiwan, U.S.-Taiwan relations, and uh, uh, has very strong views on that topic, as well as U.S.-China relations. Uh, so certainly, this would have been discussed in the White House at the highest levels with the president. And uh, we should also keep in mind that there were media reports a year ago at this time, when in the immediate aftermath of the travel at Taiwan Travel Act passing, a, an assistant secretary of state uh, came to Taiwan, and there were media reports that the president was very angry that he had not been informed about this and, and that he was angry about the level of representation uh, in that delegation. And, and uh, you know, we see that now. We see a year later that we, we don't have the cabinet level uh, officials coming here to Taiwan. Uh, so, uh, of course, this is this goes through the White House and and specifically because it is Paul Ryan, who uh, at times had a difficult relationship with President Trump, although was generally supportive of President Trump's uh, policies, whether it's economic policies or tra- uh, trade policies, uh, tax, of course, uh, Speaker Ryan was was um, you know, very closely involved with passing the Tax Reform Act uh, at the end of 2017. So uh, you know, Paul Ryan is somebody with a very close relationship with the White House. So, so uh, this was definitely decided in the White House. It was probably somebody in the White House who said, how about Paul Ryan? And there's another factor we need to keep in mind here. Guo Taiming, Honghai, their factory in Wisconsin is built in Paul Ryan's former district. The plot thickens. Do we stink a conspiracy, Donovan? <laughs> well, uh, yeah. <laughs> that there's probably conniving in different departments and different agendas going on. Well, yes, of course. I think we can take that for granted. <laughs> um, I mean, choosing Paul Ryan, yeah, the, the, that was a clever choice because Congress, you know, specifically has, uh, you know, has asked the the executive branch to send cabinet level officials to send a higher level representation to Taiwan and so states come back and said here we we will we'll, we'll we'll feed you one of your own who you know is uh, and uh, use him as the representative so congress the Republicans in Congress, I think, are not going to raise, uh, aren't going to, aren't going to complain because it's one of theirs and uh, you know a big shot on their side, and they really hold the balance. So it, it's a clever choice, uh, but who, whoever got this through, I think, was 
really wanted to tamp down U.S. support rather than increase it for Taiwan. Right, we'll move at on. least visibly. Okay, there we go. We'll move on from that. We'll look at the London School of Economics, which apparently, of course, there was a sculpture unveiled there, and controversy about said sculpture continued this week after students, stu- Taiwanese students studying at the LSE, delivered a letter to the school requesting it not change the map on said sculpture to imply that Taiwan is part of China. Now, organisers of a Facebook group that launched the petition said it had been signed by 14,000 people on 1,550 of those signatories to the letter were either current or former UK-based Taiwanese nationals. So, Ross, the world turned upside down. What was the name of the statue? Yeah, this controversy continues to go. One can only feel sympathy for the leadership of the LSE. I mean, I know people are going to criticize them and say they need to stand on the the side of what's right and and resist the pressure from the Chinese students or the Chinese embassy in London to uh, revise the map. Uh, Remember, this started because the map shows Republic of China, Taiwan, separate color. So it indicates uh, that it's a a separate country. And this is what offended Chinese students prompting their letter. And then Taiwanese students and, and supporters of Taiwan responded by saying don't change the map uh but you know the the people who run the institution they were just trying to put a, a nice piece of artwork a thought-provoking piece of artwork and the concept uh, to, to the artist's credit is thought-provoking let's look at the world upside down uh, uh you could get paid a lot of money to be making this kind of artwork i say more power to you uh but 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 again i, I think we do, we should probably be sympathetic rather than criticize the leadership because the problem for the leadership and a lot of people who support Taiwan and they do so with passion, whether whether it's here in Taiwan or overseas experts, scholars in in, in United States or, or UK, other parts of Europe, they have to keep in mind that the world doesn't revolve around China-Taiwan issues. And for, for the LSE leadership, they're probably thinking, oh my gosh, if we wade into this, what about every other disputed territory? And we've already seen this in the days after the, the PRC students raised their concerns or them to put it diplomatically, uh, that we see other other um, supporters or, or people from disputed parts of the world, whether it's uh, Israel-Palestine uh, or so many others around the world, saying, well, what about our, our disputed territory? We don't want it shown as incorporated into the con- another country because we dispute that. So if, if you're the LSE administration, how are you going to arbitrate all these things? So, so they try to find a safe way out along with the artist, which was to say, oh, we follow uh, the U.N. maps. And then, uh, you know, that turned out not to be entirely accurate. It's not clear which maps the the artist really consulted. And, and the U.N., if you sift through U.N. agencies, websites, et cetera, you're going to find a number of different maps. Uh, the, you know, the, does the U.N. recognize Taiwan as a part of the People's Republic of China, or does it uh, acknowledge the PRC position without accepting it the way the United States does. Uh, uh, there, there's no correct answer. You know, the most famous aspect of that controversy was in 2007 when then UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, uh, he had made a statement uh, when Chen Shui-bian sent an application for Taiwan to join the UN and said, well, you know, we, we recognize Taiwan as part of the PRC. Then he got a lot of criticism from scholars and the media, from the United States government at the time, uh, George W. Bush administration, uh, and he was forced to walk that back a bit and, and say, uh, you know, we don't recognize Taiwan as part of the People's Republic of China, uh, but we don't uh, recognize Taiwan as an independent country either. Thus, we're not going to accept their uh, their application. Uh, so uh, for, for the LSE, this is a big headache and one can only feel sympathy for them. And, and the, the sad thing here is 
uh, other institutions as well might become increasingly intimidated uh, from wading into this issue. So rather than uh, having events that discuss China-Taiwan relations, some institutions might shy away and say it's just not worth the hassle. That actually would not be a good outcome for Taiwan. Wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> I have uh, absolutely zero sympathy for, for the London School of Economics here. Uh, this is a school that is not only Taiwan's, it's alma mater. Uh, is, this is a school that uh, prides itself on its understanding of the world and international diplomacy. They They... Get a, they commission a artwork with borders portrayed on the artwork, and then they get blowback. Uh, if pretty much if almost all the institutions on the planet that should know better that they're going to get this kind of blowback, this is one of them. Um, you know, outside of maybe the UN, this it would be in the top ten or fifteen institutions on the planet that should know better. Uh, so if they commission this artwork and they get blowback on the borders portrayed on the artwork, then it's their own dumb fault. I, I have zero sympathy for them on this. And so yes. We could go on about yeah oh sure they you know it's, so it, it, they're well aware there are a lot of border conflicts on the you know around the world and they they should know absolutely full well that they're going to get blowback no matter what so for them to be for them to start looking weak and wobbling on this issue well either they screwed up colossally in commissioning an artwork which was going to cause controversy and they should have known better or b they they're going to have to own up and deal with it which they should have planned for so i really don't know where or how possibly we'd have sympathy for these guys this is either gross stupidity or spinelessness or it appears possibly both um which is really kind of depressing in a, out of an institution that's supposed to be uh, quite well respected for their their uh, knowledge of international affairs. So you know, I I, I have zero sympathy, and uh, you know, they're, and they're probably going to now they're they're faced with a situation where they've got. Uh, you know, Chinese students outnumber Taiwanese students there significantly. Um, so they've got a huge amount of money now at stake uh, through their probably, it looks like, incredibly stupid mistake. Um, and they are now, un, you know, they've got uh, the UK Parliament is now, they're parliamentarians stepping up in support of Taiwan. They've got the Taiwanese students who are a significant chunk there. Um and London, of course, you know, traditionally has had a uh, reputation for being an open and free place where, uh, you know, people who have different opinions from the prevailing power powers around the planet uh, have been able to to be able to speak out freely and to express themselves and and uh, now. You know, so if China gets away with changing this, that changes really London's traditional role in the world, where you know it's been a place where everyone from Karl Marx to, you know, pretty you know to pretty much you know, a huge amount of the 19th century and uh, 20th century um, revolutionaries, thinkers, people who who railed against hegemonic powers and totalitarian powers sought refuge, and if they, they buckle on this, 
that's going to sh- reflect very badly on not just their institution, but it, it's going to look bad on the UK as a whole. Methinks it's got to do with the renminbi. Anyway, we'll leave it there and we'll take a short break, but we'll be right back after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan this week. Now, after months of trying, the Taichung city government appears to have come up with a way to actually suspend operations at the city's massive coal-fired power plant. Now, they want to... Of course, Donovan, this is not through air pollutants, though, is it? They've got them with wastewater. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, it's several hundred times uh, above the, the legal limit. Um, and it, it, it's it's likely to be hopeless. Um, I, I, I suspect what's going to end up happening is is because the you know, the this is all really a national government issue. The national government controls the EPA. The national government controls the economic development uh, policies, and it, yeah, and it controls Thai power. Um, and so the lo- local governments, when they try to fight back, almost always end up losing. Um, so what's going to, I think what's going to end up happening here is they're going to, Thai power is going to scramble to come up with solutions. They're going to um, do what they can to, you know, rectify the problem at least the pay- or paper it over. Um, and uh, everything's going to go back to normal. Now, Lu Xiu-Yen has only been act- in, in, up in until this point, has has actually only been demanding one of the coal-fired units, Unit 4, be shut down. Um, This would apply to more units, probably one to four, um, which are all the coal-fired, they're all coal-fired units. being shut down, you know, if, if if this were to actually happen, they may shut them down temporarily, probably not all simultaneously, because the the national energy reserve levels would be dropped, if memory serves, to because they want to try and keep a reserve margin of power output of ten percent or more. Uh, it would bring it down to something like three percent, is I believe what they they they, they stated. Uh, so I think what's going to end up happening is Thai Power is going to have to throw some money at the problem. They may or may not be fined. Um, they may or may not take some of these units offline temporarily, um, but probably not simultaneously. I, I, I don't see this as, as, at the end of the day, uh, changing anything terribly significantly. So kind of ironic, Ross, of course, this massive coal-fired power plant in Taichung that spews horrible crap into the air has been under the thumb for a long time for its spewing crap into the air, and now they've been caught out for spewing crap into the wastewater systems. And uh, you know, politically, uh, this is uh, both good and bad for the mayor. Now, she uh, focused her campaign on addressing the pollution in Taichung generated by the power plant. And she was elected. And uh, voters uh, were clearly displeased with uh, the previous mayor, Lin Long's handling of this matter. And he lost by a large margin for, for an incumbent. Um, so she has to do something. And she has to do something quickly. And uh, I, I, I would say 
this action within the first few months of her term. They're basing it on, on a, you know, they're, they've based a, a, a legal uh, finding um, with regard to the uh, level of wastewater and, and certain pollutants, contaminants in the wastewater. Uh, so they've come up with a legal basis to take this action. So some credit goes there for, for following through on the campaign promise, taking action. It, it doesn't appear to be arbitrary. It appears, at least for now, to be based on scientific reasoning. Of course, there's this great political risk for the mayor is if this problem is not solved over the the coming months or or the next three and a half years until she tries to run for re-election, because then she'll get uh, dumped just the way Mayor Lynn was, because the the next candidate from the DPP will say, I have the solution, and and the incumbent mayor didn't do anything. Uh, So it'll be interesting to see what kind of progress. And progress could be measured by technical data, such as the level of wastewater or or pollutants in the air, but ultimately it comes down to how do the residents feel and how do they feel when they look out their window or they walk outside uh, about this pollution, because it's it's something that you you not only see, but you feel. um, You you, you feel uh, you can feel ill from this pollution, obviously. Yeah, uh, nitrate, nitrogen is what the wastewater pollution. No, was. but I'm talking about the air as well, not not just the water. Uh, so, so there needs to be demonstrable progress, and you can't, politically speaking, you cannot measure demonstrable progress simply by citing some new regulations and, or, or improved standards and saying the wastewater fails to uh, satisfy our new, tougher Taichung City government standards. So uh, for demonstrable progress you know, from a political perspective, this won't be enough, uh, uh, these new regulations on wastewater and saying that the power plant fails to satisfy the standards. Demonstrable progress will be in the air and how do residents feel about the air. Uh, so that's not something that that uh, the mayor and her team have, have achieved yet. But, but again, uh, I, I think they deserve some credit for taking action and for basing it uh, in the law. And we could also see, you know, as far as political aspects of this, we could also see where this is going, that the, the mayor and her team, her government, they're going to say, you know, though that previous mayor that DPP mayor, right, they'll always make this into political party disputes. Uh, he was poisoning your water. He wasn't just poisoning your air. Uh, so so the, there will be this political dispute aspect to these improved standards for the water as well, uh, and not just pointing the, pointing the, the finger or putting the blame on, on the previous mayor, but as you said earlier, the central government, which ultimately controls Thai power. And unfortunately, uh, Thai power, like a lot of state-owned or state-controlled Enterprises has seen a series of leadership turnover in recent years as the uh, as we went from the KMT government to the new DPP government in 2016. And over the last two and a half years, uh, the DPP government has unfortunately done a, what I would say is inordinate, too many shifting around of, of uh, executives uh, who are all political appointees at these organizations, which also doesn't uh, help solve these problems or come up with long-term plans. Right, and before we go this evening, something else from Donovan's neck of the woods, that being the annual Darjar Matsu pilgrimage, which got underway at the beginning of this week. Now, it began at the Taijong Darjar Jinlan Matsu Temple, as per usual, and the politicians played the best game of hide-and-seek with each other, as organisers tried to keep do their best, rather, to keep them very much apart. Now... 
Of course, the pilgrimage wandered its way out of Darja and into Zhanghua City, where violence once again broke out at a place that has seen similar rowdy scenes in the past. Only this time, several police officers were injured, one television cameraman caught his assailants on camera, and several other people involved in the scuffle were arrested. So, Donovan, this seems to be the annual the annual fisticuff pilgrimage. Yeah, well, this part, I mean, I think it's important to remember that there's hundreds of thousands of people involved, and uh, the, the vast majority of the pilgrims are very peaceful, and uh, it's actually a kind of a remarkable display of, of human uh, compassion and uh, working together as people, you know, line the streets and provide them with food and water and all that. Uh, but yeah, there's these. Uh, there, it's, it's it's almost invariably a small group of people who are usually youngish men. Uh, who are affiliated with temples and organized crime. Um, and, of course, they want to get near the palanquin. They want to be under it. They want to touch it. And in, in past, they've actually literally kidnapped the palanquin and the statue that it holds. Um, and uh, so they, and for, for some reason, the drama always happens at the Minsheng underpass in Zhanghua City. And it's, uh, this is, so there's this underpass, and it's usually just before, during, or just after it goes through this underpass where the, where the, the, the violence, the worst violence along the journey happens. There's usually some other sporadic bits of violence elsewhere, but it always seems to be focused. This is where the most dramatic images of violence happen. And so this time, uh, once again, uh, you know, rival gangs fought it out. But what made this unusual this year is that Yan Qingbiao, who's the uh, chairman of the uh, Dajia Jinlan Mazu Temple uh, Association, and himself uh, jailed uh, more than once uh, and uh, over ties with organized crime, um, he, uh, he personally uh, helped carry the palanquin uh, through part of this stretch. Now, here's the part that's 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 a little little bit bizarre, and uh, and it, it's unclear why the next part happened. And that is that the uh, <clears throat> he then handed over the pal- his role on, on carrying the palanquin to of all people, Zhang Anle, the White Wolf, the founder of the Chinese Unification Promotion Party, uh, who himself uh, was previously jailed for uh, organized crime connections, specifically the Bamboo Union. And now there have been some underlings, at least one has been quoted in the paper as saying they had no idea he was going to show up. They didn't know he was supposed to be there. There's been no word from Yan Qingbiao about this. Uh, so, you know, was this planned or was it not planned? Was it supposed to be a show of force to stop the violence? Because Yan Qingbiao himself had come out uh, and repeatedly called on people to that there would be no fighting, no fighting this year. And as he put it, the bill will fall on me. And so whether, you know, Zhang Anle was brought in as a show of unity, to the young blood gangsters from the old school guys, or not is really, it's not not widely known whether that that was what was going on or not. Um, But regardless, what ended up happening is, is that, you know, a big brawl broke out. Uh, Once the palanquin was handed 
to Jiang Anle's crew, that's when the, the violence started to break out, um, after he'd had it for, I think, like 30 seconds, something like that. Um, and uh, the uh, the CTI uh, reporter, he didn't actually capture the violence. Um, it was cell phone image of some young toughs, uh, several of them, uh, basically pummeling him and smashing his camera. I am shocked, shocked to hear allegations or aspersions that there's any relationship between organized crime and uh, religious institutions <laughs> here in Taiwan. Uh, really, I just I, I never heard of this before. Uh, but uh, if we could look at this positively, um, it's, it's a it's a popular event, and it shows the enthusiasm that people in Taiwan, regardless of political uh, or even organized crime affiliations, have uh, their their enthusiasm for uh, uh, cultural and, and religious or events that are, are a, a mixture of the two, cultural, religious, or even uh, historical in nature. And that even in a modern society like Taiwan, where we're all looking at our mobile phones constantly, that people still have an enthusiasm, <clears throat> excuse me, to participate in these activities. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, this is, there are hundreds of thousands of people involved in this, and the vast majority of them uh, are doing it for religious or cultural reasons. I mean, not all of them are there for the religious part of it. They're also there just for the cultural heritage part of it. And and it is a, a remarkable pil- pilgrimage, and I, and, and I think that it's important to re- remind people that in spite of these outbreaks of violence and the organized crime connections, that the, the, that's a, a few brawls out at a, out of hundreds of thousands of people is is a pretty pretty small number of people. And of course, Ross, politicians do go to this at the beginning, and of course, there is the organised crime connection. I mean, this should be erred about somewhat. Gavin, are you suggesting that? Uh, organized crime as well as politicians uh, have a relationship with religious organizations or that there's some kind of sick triangular relationship among the three? <laughs> Let's focus on the positive. What, what would be a good term for like a triangular relationship, like a triad or something like that? Precisely. Is that, is that where you're uh, going with it? But, but as, you, as you mentioned at the beginning of the segment, Gavin, the, the, the organizers uh, last Sunday uh, had to go to uh, somewhat extreme uh, detailed planning efforts to make sure that competing politicians arrived at different times of the day when they came to pay their respects uh, to to um, the festival and the, and the organizers uh, and show their faces. And because we've entered a, a presidential election season, it's not just a question of, say, incumbent uh, mayors, president, vice president, premier, members of the legislative union. Actually, it's all of the above. So incumbent office holders uh, at, at, at the local level or the central government level, executive branch, legislative branch, but also the people who are running for office or potentially running for office. So that's why you see people like potential KMT candidates, Julie Lund, showing up at the event. Mayor Cohen uh, who might have gone simply because he's, he's, he's the mayor of the capital and it would be a courtesy to come to this event. Uh, but he's also a potential presidential candidate, Lai ching obviously uh, challenging Tsai Ing-wen in the DPP primary. Uh, you know, so, for example, if he hadn't announced that he was uh, challenging Tsai Ing-wen in the primary, would he have even gone to this event or would there even have been a need to 
uh, arrange carefully what time he shows up so he doesn't cross over with other uh, potential uh, presidential candidates. Uh, uh, politics was very much part of the mix um, at, at the beginning of the event. So it wasn't just a cultural, religious event or, or a historical event, uh, but it, it also was clearly a political event as well. Yeah, Ross is absolutely right about that. Uh, and I can just add like, one little detail is there was a lot going on on the KMT side about Wu uh, Duani trying to get meetings with Wang Jinping, um, uh, Eric Chu, and uh, with also with uh, Han Guoyu. And of course, uh, you know, Eric Chu called for transparency. Hang will you said, well, I have to go to America. And, and Wu Duni is like, oh, okay, no problem. We'll meet up after he comes back. But both of them were in town uh, at, you know, very similar times. But again, uh, you know, as Ross noted, they, they, they were scheduled so that they wouldn't cross paths. And it was very tightly scheduled specifically so that wouldn't happen. Right, and that's where we'll leave it here this week, here on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Ross Feingold. Good evening. And on the telephone by Donovan Smith. And good evening. Have a great weekend. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.